Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Last couple of weeks I've been reading a book about Jewish people during the 1930s and the 1940s. Obviously in history that was a very difficult time for much of the Jewish population of Europe in 1933. You had Adolf Hitler who uh, rose up in Germany and as part of his proclamation was that the Jews were the problem why they'd lost the previous war, World War I, or as they knew it, the war to end all wars, the Great War, and that their financial problems were as the result of the Jews. And from 1933 and following, you had many people in Germany and Austria, especially Jews, but even other people of other ethnic extractions that were targeted by the Nazis. And the Nazis came up with a policy where they would uh, bring Jews into camps for protective custody. That's what they called it. For their own safety, for their own protection from people that might do them harm. These camps over time, we eventually know them as concentration camps. But in the late 1930s, these were places where Jews were put uh, for their own protective custody. And you had Jews that began to realize that uh, their safety in Europe was not uh, going to continue. And so they began to think about going to other locations. One of the places that began to take in a large portion of the Jewish population uh, was the country of England that uh, they began to take in initially children and orphans and the, the like of Jewish individuals, but began to take in all sorts of other people from these regions. In fact, you had some individuals that escaped from these protective custody camps uh, in uh, Germany to come to England. And there they experienced freedom. They were able to get jobs and, and find places of work and, and be able to do this. You had many of these individuals were uh, educators and academics that had been teaching in colleges across Germany uh, and Austria and other places in Europe. And because of the, the difficulty and the persecution they were facing, they came to England and, and got themselves jobs teaching there. But 1939, Adolf Hitler invaded Poland, and in 1940, uh, it became obvious that he was going to grab a larger portion of Europe by the invasion of France and Holland and places like that. And what suddenly happened in the nation of uh, England, uh, or the Great Britain, was that suddenly they began to be concerned about individuals that may have been from Europe, the continent of Europe, that these might be spies individuals that were just merely sent to England to be ones to prepare for an invasion from Adolf Hitler. And so when Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of England, one of the very first policies he instituted when France was being invaded across the Channel was to take in all of these individuals who had fled Europe and send them to camps for protective custody. Same words. Adolf Hitler almost uh, could not believe that here the English were doing the same thing. They were taking these people who fled tyranny in Germany and Austria, and now here the English themselves are just 
taking anyone. It didn't matter if they were anti-Nazis or in favor of the Nazis. It didn't matter their background. They just mass collected all of them and began sending them either to Canada and Australia or they sent them to an island called the Island of Man that's between England and Ireland and they sent them to camps of protective custody. Now, reading that story, it's a story of just tragedy. You have individuals who fled for freedom to a country that they thought they were going to be free and ironically are stuck in the same kind of camps, same names that they're being stuck in, uh, regardless of their feelings about the Germans' uh, policies or whatever they may have been, they were just stuck in these camps. And I look at uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 2, that we're going to look at today and we have to realize this that the Jewish people from generation to generation have been suffering unusual things the difficult things and and you do see it displayed that when Adolf Hitler finally got all that he wanted he ended up uh, murdering and executing over six million Jews But what you see here in Matthew chapter 2, in a passage that we're going to look at today, you have an individual who's supposed to be governing the Jews that wipes a certain segment of their population out. That man is Herod, and you would almost put it in quotes, the great. He was great because of the projects that he built, and he built some fantastic projects that still remain to this day in the land of Israel 2,000 years later. But as far as a person, he's not a good man in his relations with even his family, but even with the Jews that he was supposed to rule over. We read this morning this initial passage where we're introduced to Herod, the wise men coming in and asking, uh, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We'll talk a little bit about why that would have stirred Herod uh, in his own mind, but you have this occasion where the wise men are sent out by Herod on a mission. Go find this one who's born king of the Jews. And these wise men go about six miles south as they follow this star. You can actually see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. That's how far away it is. It's not a great distance, but six miles to the south, uh, they came to this place in Bethlehem. They came to this house where Jesus was at, that they came and worshiped him. But we didn't read verse 12 in our reading this morning, and it said this, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. You have the story in between uh, this statement of we we went through last week of uh, Joseph being warned now to flee to Egypt, and we had that whole passage last week we looked at. But then you get to verse number 16, and it says this, And here's our passage, verse 16 through 18, that we're going to look at this morning. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, was a, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. End of story. 
We're in a series right now, and uh, we started it last week, of Christmas stories that make no sense. And you say, what do you mean they don't make any sense? It's when you look at the prophecies attached to them. See, Matthew has five uh, different separate Christmas stories, and there's a prophecy attached to each one of them. And some of them are rather easy to figure out. That one of them, in the very start, when Jesus is born... Uh, that uh, you have this prophecy uh, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You kind of go, okay, I can go to Isaiah and figure this out, that this is a special occasion uh, and that this is a prophecy. And you get to the story of Herod that we read this morning and him inquiring of his official, his own wise men, where is this one going to be born that is king of the Jews? And these men immediately quote Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2. I mean, this is the thing that comes to their mind instantaneously, that this one is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, that's going to rule. Though Judah, or excuse me, Bethlehem is a small city, this one is going to rule the nations. They quote this passage. It's immediate for them back uh, 2,000 years ago to recognize that this is a prophecy of where the Messiah is going to be born. And then we got to the one last week where we said uh, we had that prophecy at the end of verse number 15, out of Egypt have I called my son. Here Jesus is called to Egypt and he's told that, but you go back and look at Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 and you're going, not seeing it. Doesn't even seem to be in context. It seems like Matthew may have just pulled this statement out of the Old Testament and said, hey, this applies you're going, well, this is not an easy prophecy to figure out. And last week we went through this one, out of Egypt have I called my son, and just came to the conclusion and understanding that Israel itself had been called and rescued out of Egypt and that the greatest representative of the nation of Israel was Christ himself. That everything that the nation of Israel went through, that uh, their salvation and deliverance, Christ is the greatest representative of this, and so he is down in Egypt, and he comes out of Egypt, delivered by God, and that this prophecy that was, well, prophesying that the nation of Israel had in its past been rescued is really a representative of this one Messiah who's going to come. Our prophecy this week is that one in verse 18 in Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. That's the prophecy. When you look at it in context again in the Old Testament, it makes no sense. You're not even sure how, they, how Matthew came up and pulled this out initially. When you look at this, it, it doesn't make any sense at all how this possibly could fit with this story about Herod murdering these children. So I want to start this morning and just look at the story itself, okay? Just get the story, the details down of the story before we get to the prophecy and then say, how does this prophecy even come close to talking about this story in Bethlehem that occurred under Herod? So the story itself is just simply this. Verse 16, Herod, when he saw he was mocked, and what you see right off is that what we might put this way, the wise men's, and we put it in quotes, trickery. See, the, the statement there, when Herod, when he saw that he was mocked, uh, the, we might, uh, in our English vernacular, say this, that he felt like he had been tricked. 
You say, well, how would, you feel, how did, would he feel that he had been tricked? Well, you read the story this morning that he had very clearly told the wise men, you go and find uh, this one so that I can come and worship him. When you found him, come back and report to me and let me know where he's at. And this would not have been a difficult thing because he himself knows that this is supposed to take place in Bethlehem. His own wise men have told him that. And so it's a journey of five to six miles to Bethlehem. That would have taken an hour or two to travel. Uh, and that the wise men would have been able to do some investigative inquiry and, and come back and be back in a day or two. And for Herod, he sits and waits for a day or two or three, and he suddenly realizes the wise men aren't coming back. These ones that he's given information to, that this one's going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, that he's going to be, uh, this ruler is going to be born there, he's told them this information, and they haven't come back giving him extra information. Now, you might say from a human perspective that these wise men tricked Herod, but the fact is, is they didn't trick Herod. God told them to go a different way, to go a different direction, to leave. So this is God uh, thwarting the plans and the thoughts of Herod to get information on this. I mean, Herod deemed that the Magi were trifling with him. They got out of him the information they needed and then coolly went off without bringing back the information he required and expected. A despot easily comes to regard the slightest neglect to do his bidding as a gross insult. And the response we see of Herod, he sees that he's been tricked, and the statement there is that he's exceeding wrath. Okay, this is not just, he's just, this is an irritation or frustration. Everybody in the palace would have known by the anger or the temper tantrum that he is throwing at the fact that the wise men have not come back. It's an offense to him and everybody knows about it. You say, well, what happens as a result of this? Well, it's this tragic command that goes forth. He sent forth his command in verse 16, slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. He sends out a command for the murdering of all male children in the region of Bethlehem. Now, we have to understand that we aren't talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of children being killed off here. Most people estimate that at this time that uh, the population of Bethlehem was probably no more than 20,000. It was probably less than that. But just by going by estimates of how many two-year-olds you would probably have in that population, most people judge this to be the murder of anywhere between 20 and 30 children. Now some question this story. You know, why would they question the story? Because Herod was known for being an individual who did this all the time. Herod was a man who was paranoid. He was always worried about someone coming to claim his throne. You go, why? 
Well, Herod, you'd say he's the Roman government, the Roman representative of the region, but he is not a Jew. He's an Edomian. You go, what's that? An Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. But because of his workings and dealings with the the Roman government, he is allowed to have a position of authority over this region. And when he gains power, what he does is that he marries into the ruling priestly family in the land of Israel. They didn't have a king in Israel, but they had these priests that in the century before had freed the nation of Israel. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. This is the result of all of this. This priestly individuals that went through and fought against uh, the tyranny of the Romans at the time and gained some sort of freedom for a period of time. But what Herod did is that he married into this priestly family and then proceeded to murder off large portions of that family because he was afraid that others would come and take care of him. When he takes over, he murders off, well, his wife's parents and grandparents. Uh, He, well, killed off a brother-in-law, mother-in-law. He had a court of individuals that was a part of this ruling class, and he murdered off 300 of them just to start off his rule. Eventually, this individual, this Herod, was so paranoid that he ends up killing three of his own sons. He had a wife by the name of Miriam that he loved but still had her executed because he wasn't sure of her loyalties, even though he loved her greatly. It became proverbial in Rome that Herod was a cruel man. In fact, the statement is uh, suggested that was going around Rome was this, is that I'd rather be Herod's pig than his child. You say, why is that? Well, uh, even though he was an Edomite, he had taken up Jewish customs so his pig would have been safe from a meal. His children, not safe. There are occasions that he would ruthlessly murder villages that he would take over and inhabitants would surrender and he would kill all the inhabitants and burn the city down even though they had surrendered. At the end of his life, which is going, we're going to talk about this next week, but at the end of his life, what he did is that he arrested one member of every noble family in Israel and had them in an amphitheater. And what his uh, desire was this, is that when he died, all of those individuals he had there would be executed. And you said, why? It was because he wanted people to be sad on the occasion of his death. They wouldn't be mourning his death. They would be mourning all these other deaths. But at least people would be crying when he passed away. And some have said, well, why don't we have this story in history recorded about the murder of these babies? Young children, ages two and under, why don't we have this recorded? You just think through the life of Herod, an insignificant town called Bethlehem where you're not killing off nobility, you're just killing off regular peasant people. It's really not going to make the news. It's not written down by historians. It's not to say that this didn't happen. In fact, looking at the life of Herod, you're probably going, yeah, I could see this happening. 
on a whim that this man would command the destruction and the killing of children because he's afraid he's missed out on someone who might take over his throne. So let's execute children who have no idea even what their next meal is going to be. Their innocence, as we would describe them, Herod is such a violent man that he's willing to kill them off in order to save and preserve his position of authority. You go through a story like this and you understand that this is not new, that these type of things happen, sadly, all over the world. Tragedies, things like this that occur. Even in the story that we're reminded uh, of over and over again, of this babe in the manger and there's happiness and joy, you realize that in this story there's a great tragedy. You have families that lost sons, grandsons, nephews at the whim of this king. So you get that story, you go through all of this, and if you know the background about Herod and everything, and then this story, you kind of go, this is a tragedy. So why was this prophecy chosen? And so let's look at the prophecy. You have the story, but let's just look at the prophecy now. Matthew, in the, the quoting of this statement, actually gives us who the prophet is. Typically, he doesn't tell you who the prophet is. But in this case, he goes, the prophet that this comes from is Jeremy. We would know him as Jeremiah. And that this is a prophecy of him that is being given. And what I want us to do is to turn back to where this prophecy is at, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. So hold your place here because we will coming back but we'll spend a little bit of time here in Jeremiah 31 you have to realize that the time that Jeremiah lived in was a time of great difficulty and sorrow in fact you remember the nickname that is given to uh, Jeremiah is that he is the weeping prophet you go, why is that? Well, he is one who lives during the time of the exile of the nation of Israel. I mean, the ten tribes have already been hauled off. There's two tribes left centered around the city of Jerusalem. And, well, even with the, as you read through the book of Jeremiah, the kings that are there, though they're warned not to worship other gods and to put their trust in other nations, they're still doing this. And so Jeremiah is going to be an eyewitness to the nation of Israel having hundreds of thousands killed in the capture of Jerusalem and many hauled off to uh, exile never to come back. Jeremiah is the one who observes this. And so he writes a lot about messages of sorrow and these type of things going on. And so Jeremiah 31, you get to this passage and it's a passage where he's trying to give some hope to people who are going to be hauled off or that they're going to lose family members and so he's trying to give hope to them 
But he also has to talk about the reality that's going on, the loss of life and people being hauled off into captivity never to come back. And so in the midst of this, as you go through Jeremiah chapter 31, you get to verse number 15, and it says this, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahel, we would say Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And you go, okay, so what has this got to do with the story in Bethlehem? I mean, it talks about Rachel. Like, why is Rachel suddenly brought up here? Well, uh, the statement that Ramah is this place uh, where you have uh, this weeping taking place. Ramah was a place six miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, Bethlehem's a town six miles south of Jerusalem. Ramah was an important place because uh, the belief is, is that in the area of Ramah, was where Rachel was buried. Ramah was an important city because it was the birthplace or the home of Hannah, the birthplace and burial place of Samuel. Uh, Rachel had given birth to Benjamin and was buried near Ramah. But there's an interesting statement in Genesis chapter 35 at the death of Rachel as she's burying these children, and it's this, and I'm going to read you the account in Genesis 35 of her birth and death, the birth of Benjamin, the death of Rachel. It talks about Jacob going with his family. They journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrathah. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor, and it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, which is basically son of sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, which is son of the right hand. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And you go, okay, so we have a story that has a prophecy about Rachel being buried near Ramah, 12 miles north of Bethlehem. But the story is that she's buried on the way to Bethlehem. So she's buried somewhere south of Ramah, somewhere along the way, but she died in this region. So this is a region that she would have been a part of, buried in, and been there for generations. But you say, well, why is this, the story and this prophecy suddenly talking about Rachel weeping for her children? Because by the time Jeremiah wrote... Rachel had been gone for 1,200 years. She wasn't around. Why why talk about Rachel weeping for her children? Well, you have this understanding that Rachel was one who was the mother of the nation of Israel. Now, granted, you have to go a little bit in the story to think about it. She wasn't the mother of all the tribes of Israel say the tribes of Israel. Uh, Israel is another name for Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. 
only Rachel, Rachel had Benjamin and Joseph, but you have to realize that Joseph was the father of Manasseh and Ephraim, which were some of the northern tribes. She was also the mother of Benjamin, who was part of the southern tribes. She had children on both sides of the line, and they would say, in the nation of Israel. And for the nation of Israel, she's like a mother that represents all mothers of the nation of Israel. And at this time, it's kind of this you know, imaginary story that is going on here, but Rachel weeping for her children. There's agony like there is going to be agony with all of the mothers that are going to be at this time that are going to see their children hauled off to Babylon. And the irony of it is this, is that this place called Ramah uh, that's just north of uh, the city of Jerusalem was the collection point for all the prisoners before they were marched off to Babylon. And so you have this prophecy that is just simply saying this. Jeremiah is saying there's going to be great weeping and we'll just represent it this way. Rachel, who's from this region of Jerusalem, uh, this region surrounding Jerusalem, that was on her way to Bethlehem, that was buried near Ramah, that this story of weeping, she represents mothers who have lost their children in the nation of Israel throughout their history. And that the nation of Israel here in this story is going to suffer the loss of their children in the time of Jeremiah. The grief is such that it's great. So you go, okay, so what's the connection of using this passage of Scripture that doesn't really seem to be talking about the story of Bethlehem here? And there's several ways to connect it. Why did Matthew use this prophecy, grab this one out of all the passages of the Old Testament that he could have, that the Holy Spirit said, use that one in relation to the story about Herod? And I can give you two connections of why this would be the case. That there is an understanding that in Israel's history, there has been sorrow over loss loss of children this is not a new thing with bethlehem is suffering that they lose these children and grandchildren that it is something that happens it's not superficial here that he quotes this this is a reminder of the great loss that takes place that there would have been grieving like there had been previously when there had been this exile of mothers uh, crying over the fact that they would not see their children anymore. And you could take that passage and understand this, that there is sorrow in this world. Okay, I mean, that's not kind of the Christmas story you want to have. You're, you kind of go, let's have a, you know, a good Christmas story. And, and, and this is just reminding us that this has been the case for generations. Sorrow and suffering is a part of humanity, human life. It was a part of the nation of Israel's history. That sorrow is a part of this, and understand this, that it's not that God's not acquainted with sorrow. That it shocks God that people are in sorrow at the loss of things. 
thinking about this over the, the weekend uh, coming up to this point, and I was thinking about one passage that talks about that is clearly prophesying Christ's ministry in Isaiah chapter 53, and there's a statement made in verse number 3 there that says this, speaking of Christ, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid our faces as it were from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I mean, you, you start off the story of Christ, and from the start, he's acquainted with sorrow and grief. His story is a part of the tragedy that goes on in humanity because of sin and sin nature. He sees the devastating consequences of this. Right from the start, around him, there is sorrow and weeping to be magnified when he's finally on the cross where he feels like he's forsaken and he's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When you start off this story, God understands that there is sorrow in this world and even his own son from the start, from his birth, had and was surrounded by people in grief and sorrow over the circumstances surrounding them at the loss that they were experiencing. So this may very well be one of the reasons why Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, chose this passage for us to recognize that God understands. God sees sorrow. He knows it exists. It's not that he's up there and, uh, in his, uh, his heavenly throne and his palace up in heaven and ignoring everything that goes on down here. He recognizes human tragedy and sorrow, his own son being a part of it. But I think there's a little bit more to this than that. Because anybody that would have recognized, okay, this is from Jeremy the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, they would go back and look at the context itself. And what we stopped at in Jeremiah 31 was verse 15. I want you to go to verse 16. It's the one that's not quoted. It says this, Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. There is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. In this prophecy, there's this message of hope. Yes, you're sorrowing now, but you can give that up because what I'm going to do is return those children. That I'm going to do a work where I'm going to, and as we understand what Jeremiah prophesies and Daniel prophesies, that he's going to take his children away, the Israelites, for 70 years, and then their captivity, they're going to be released allowed to come back to the land and in this prophecy of yes you're going to weep and sorrow and there's going to be difficulty but that's not the end of the story there are times of sorrow there are times of weeping but there's hope that god can do something in the midst of tragedy and sorrow that goes beyond what we immediately feel and see that god can do something beyond that that he can give hope in the midst of tragedy but it goes even further than that when you look at the context because in jeremiah chapter 31 
what God promises is something that's incredible to the mind of the Jews. See, the Jews were living in a time frame where they were underneath what was known as the Mosaic Covenant, or we would call it the Old Covenant. Where at Mount Sinai, they had come as a people, and God said, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and there were promises and blessings if the nation of Israel would follow after God. That they would follow after God, that there wouldn't be tragedies, they wouldn't be carried off into captivity, their crops would be fine, they'd have good health. But when they didn't follow after God... What would happen to them? Their crops wouldn't go well. They'd have sickness and disease. They would be invaded by other countries. And it would come to a point where God would just take them out of the land. The land was God's blessing to them. But he said, listen, you don't follow me as your God and you don't follow me as if you're my people. And what I'm eventually going to do is take you out of the land. And it's be sorrowful and there's going to be great sorrow and all these things that happen to you. And... The nation of Israel is just sitting there going, yeah, we try and follow you, but there's a problem. It's called our own heart. Our heart's inclined to sin. Our heart's inclined to self-destruction. We love sin. We follow after it. And as a result of this, we bring great sorrow and tragedy to our own life as a result of doing these things. What the nation of Israel finds in the whole of the Old Testament is just proving that people can't follow God on their own. They need help. You can give them laws, you can give them rules, but those are external. There's a problem in their heart that causes sin. So in the midst of all of this that we have here of you're going to be carried off, but I am going to return you as the nation of Israel, but God promises something even beyond this. Verse 31 of chapter 31. This section is one of the first mentions of the new covenant. What God is going to do in the future for His people. It says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt to bring them, or excuse me, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What you have in this prophecy of Jeremiah is a connection to the fact that there's hope beyond the present circumstances of sorrow and perhaps getting that fixed that these children would be returned from exile. No, God's got something to deliver them from the greatest of their problems, their sin and their iniquities. That God's going to have a new covenant. And when you had a covenant and you made a covenant back in this time, you had to have the shedding of blood. That was kind of the binder for the agreement. This is why you would have sacrifices and covenants in the Old Testament. But here you have this new covenant that's going to be established where it says in verse 34, I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. And 
I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you say, wait a second, this is, this is a passage that is talking about what this one child that is here, that's a part of the story, that's being delivered to Egypt to come back again. This is the one, even though you have individuals that are greatly sorrowing here, they have hope that their greatest problem will be solved, and that's the problem of sin that God's going to do something and you have in this prophecy a hinting at the new covenant. A hope, even though there's great sorrow, there's hope that God has something greater for individuals that He is going to provide even though they're surrounded by tragedy and surrounded by difficulty. And so as you come to this passage and going back to Matthew chapter 2, and looking at this in the whole scheme of things and the different parts of the story that he's telling as he goes through there, this one that's delivered to Egypt but's going to come back and be delivered uh, from Egypt and he's going to do things that are like Moses and the saving of people. That we have this story, yes, there's all this tragedy and crying and weeping, but in the midst of this, let's just grab onto a prophecy that does acknowledge their sorrow in our world, and it happens, but there's hope beyond immediate circumstances that God is going to be able to do something beyond what you could even imagine. started off the sermon with a story about the Jews and them being interned in camps in England after they had been released and you would say well what did they do when they got to those camps realize that the, the first few weeks that they were there there was just a frustration that here they were being hauled off to camps again behind barbed wire having soldiers around the barbed wire, uh, holding them in and keeping them there. But what was the interesting thing is that in the midst of their sorrow, they said there are things we can do. For them, it was this, that they started teaching one another. You had a whole bunch of people who were academics. They start giving out free education. They start teaching. You had people here that were artists that begin to paint people that are there. They're using what they have. They had people who were musicians. In fact, they had one that was there that just asked for paper and he was, he was taking whole scores of operas and writing them back down from memory so that people there could then perform these things. And the amazing thing was is that yes, they were once again held by, well, captive they were held on these is the island of man there for almost two years. Uh, then in the middle of the war, they were finally released to be able to help the war effort against Nazi Germany. Uh, but for those years, they were painting, they were putting on plays, they were putting on concerts, they were teaching one another. And what you found in a, a situation that wasn't a great situation, you found great hope. So it is in this story as we read of the tragedy of Herod murdering off all of these children. And it might be that you just kind of throw up your hands and go, does God really care? And the answer is God has been aware of human tragedy and the solution as we've seen as we've gone through the book of Genesis, right in Genesis 3.15, God says, listen, I've got a plan to save mankind. 
to give victory over sin and the consequences of sin, and I'm going to do this. And so you get to a story of this tragedy, and there's hope that God has this son that he's just rescued from this situation that he's going to bring back to set up a new covenant. I mean, think about the last event before his uh, trial and his crucifixion. He has this last, what we call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And then he's talking about this as he has the cup. He says this, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that what I did was the solution. And it was through my blood to be able to give people things they could not gain for themselves, that they had destroyed themselves by sin. But through this new covenant, this child who was rescued from this mad tyrant, that it's the hint of the new covenant that there's hope, not just for present circumstances, but for eternity because of this babe who was rescued in this tragedy to give us hope for eternity. Lord, we thank you. I have no idea of the difficulties that individuals have been going through this week. Tragedy, sorrow, continued burden that is just weight. Thank you, God, for acknowledging the fact that there is sorrow in this world, that you know it exists, and that you're caring enough to try and reach us in our need. That you weren't just merely concerned about our own temporary difficulties and tragedies that you were concerned about our greatest difficulty and tragedy and that's our broken relationship with you and we thank you that you were willing to send your son to a world filled with sorrow rejection violence and that this son was willing to live his life here and was willing to suffer great indignity on a cross to give us hope. To give us a confidence that we can be right with you, and it's not because of who we are, it's because of your Son who died on a cross, rose again to guarantee life eternal for those that call upon Him. Lord, I don't know where people are at today, but if they don't know Christ, they're missing out the importance of this story of tragedy, that there is a Savior that's available to take care of our greatest need, our greatest sorrow. So Lord, today, if there's one here that has not accepted Christ as their Savior, they need to. They're going to find life frustrating in this time, in present time, but they're going to find eternity great loss. May they find the Savior. And for us as believers, as we read this story, may we recognize the fact that you're a God that recognizes tragedy, that you know sorrow, and that you're observing, and that you are bringing in the help that we need in those situations that you do care. You're not distant and far. You're nearer than anyone else. 
And so for us as believers, may we even in our tragedy understand you've given us a great hope. And may we delight in it. So we praise you in the name of your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.